boom, I think it's going. Yeah, it's going. Um, so this isn't just because I turned it on to record this. For you, Rebecca, that uh, she has done, thank you, she has done a fantastic job. That said, there's almost no way uh, for her to tee up an exploration of this kind of topic in the amount of weeks that you have. And for some of you, this is maybe, you're saying, no, this is exactly what I need and I want to go further. Even when the study is completed, uh, I want to go further. So there's a, a handful of books, lots of books written on this, as you can imagine. But the ones that I would um, point you to, one is by Peter Kreeft. And I'm going to write for you how to spell his name because it looks like Kreeft. But it's Peter Kreeft. Uh, he's a, actually a Catholic theologian. I think he still teaches at Boston University. But he wrote a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering. Making Sense Out of Suffering. Um, I think it might be one of the better books out there. Um, I, I first got, I encountered Peter Kreeft when I first became a believer because he's written a couple of books that are written almost like movie scripts. So they're really clever in the way that they're written. Uh, C.S. Lewis-like um, in that way, but he wrote one called, uh, I think it's called, oh shoot, I'll come up with it, but it's on the same day in 1962, three men died within hours of each other. C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley, who's an author that wrote a lot of dystopian, he's like an Eastern mystic kind of guy, uh, and John F. Kennedy. So Peter Crave takes them to some place beyond the grave where they, the three of them have a conversation. Like they all just died and they all get to have a conversation. So C.S. Lewis representing Christianity, Aldous Huxley kind of Eastern uh, thought, philosophical thought, and John F. Kennedy like the modern man, like the secularist modern man. So it, he, he just writes some very creative things I think you would enjoy. This isn't like that, obviously, much deeper topic. I actually got a chance crazy to meet Peter Kraft, and he, he came to Iowa State to do some lectures, and I, I have all these weird encounters with people that I idolize, and I get all, like, crazy, and it was, what's that? Between Heaven Between Heaven and Hell, thank you, that's the name of that first book, yeah, thanks. Between Heaven and Hell is the first book that I was describing, but anyway, Peter Kraft was relatively uninspiring over dinner, and I, I was all nervous for nothing. Uh, that said, the next one is Elizabeth Elliot. The reason I'm writing this is because I'm writing her first name so you get it right, because it's with an S, not a Z, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, also brilliant, and has written a book called Suffering is Never for Nothing. Uh, Teresa is actually in the middle of that one now. Or did you finish it? I don't know. But it... Uh, so this was actually written uh, posthumously after she died. She's gone now. But it's a collection. She wrote another book while she was still alive on suffering. This is actually kind of a refinement of lots of things that she wrote. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot also got to meet. She wrote in my orange Volvo when I was in Los Angeles. I got to pick her up at Valerie's house, if you know her story. Her daughter from Jim Elliot, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, I swore I would, like, take that seat out of the car of my orange Volvo and keep it forever because I had both Elizabeth Elliot and John MacArthur in the same seat in an orange Volvo. Kind of embarrassing. But uh, The last one is Paul Tripp. And uh, he wrote a book called Suffering. Um, 
and the subtitle is When Life Doesn't Make Sense, Paul Tripp. And if you just put suffering, you'll, you'll find that one. That's um, also very new, just like Elizabeth Elliot's is newly out. Um, here's the unique thing about Paul Tripp's book. He's still in the midst of his suffering as he's writing it. Um, he uh, has a lot of really severe medical issues. And it's not like you get to the end and everything worked out great. He's actually still in a dire place as he's finishing the book. And that's what kind of makes it a little authentic, I think, is to let him explore um, suffering while still in the middle of it. So anyway, those, those would be some books. Um, I saw that um, Rebecca had C.S. Lewis, a great quote out of um, his book, The Great Divorce. If you're new to C.S. Lewis, that might be, The Great Divorce, might be one of the best ones to start with. It's very clever, very profound, but really kind of magical in the way that Lewis can do that. Um, But there's another quote that I think fits this topic today from C.S. Lewis. It's actually at A Mere Christianity, which I think is a much more difficult read than The Great Divorce and some of his other things. Even though it's mere Christianity, it's supposed to be like simple Christianity. Um, You know, even now I'm like, I read this when I was first a believer. What in the world did I get out of this? I barely understand it now. But I did. I I read it and gained a ton. Here's what he says. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. What Lewis is trying to say is um, if we hit... Like times like suffering, loss. And we have this angst in our soul like, it shouldn't be this way. Well, think about this. It's a little bit philosophical, but I want you to think about this. Where would we get that idea if we are purely materialists? Materialists meaning we're just chemical bonds. You know, we're just, just material. There's no soulish part of us, no spiritual part of us. Where would a material being get an idea that there's something else out there that we're suddenly missing? The only explanation for this feeling in our souls that there's some, a gap, something missing, is that there must be something out there that fits that gap. Does that make sense? He's trying to say the only explanation for feelings of loss, feelings of suffering, feelings of injustice, is that there has to be a thing like justice. There has to be a thing like fulfillment. Otherwise, we would never have kind of the radar internally to, to have that sense. Anyway, I think um, there's a lot to be said for, for that. So that's really at the heart of what Rebecca is trying to convey, I think, in this lesson, actually, is we're going to, in fact, right now open up to um, Genesis 1. And what Genesis 1 and 2 are going to do for us is let us know um, the way things ought to be, right? Um, in fact, the, the word that you've probably heard in a lot of contexts is the word shalom. That's a Hebrew word that we often just translate in quick English as peace, right? But shalom means a lot more than that. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Shalom is, is the peace kind of pervasive, like everything is the way it ought to be. That's, that's the word shalom that's often translated in English peace. And what Genesis 1 and 2 does is helps to describe for us shalom. 
Sometimes in modern literature, we talk about utopia, like where that place is, where everything's as it ought to be. And, and in order for us to fix our hope as Christians, that there's actually going to be a new shalom, that shalom still exists out there and we're heading in that direction, is to look first at the way things ought to be, right? And, and that's what I think the, the bigger point uh, is of, of looking at, at Genesis as strongly as, as Rebecca has us do. So let me, uh, let me start by just reading the first verses, and then this is going to be actually uh, interactive, okay? I don't have a bunch of notes. I have one page and post-its, one of which says Osage Wrestling. Um, so you can see this, this is going to, this is going to and, and by the way, there, are, there was a, a couple questions asked Sunday night that were really key that I'm glad we had the opportunity. Um, I was careless with time. <laughs> And so all of a sudden I was like, no, wait, you guys have to get out of here by eight, right? And they're like, yeah, that's one minute from now. I'm like, oh, holy cow. So anyway, I'm going to work harder at time management because I would love for you to choose your own adventure. Some things that maybe you, even after reading, studying, and then had your table time, you still want to press in a little bit more. So I want get to get to those. So Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, I love that, that in the beginning, God, I often in my new Bibles just underline in the beginning, God, God is presupposed in the Bible. It's not, let me prove to you there is a God. Nope. It's just in the beginning, God already existed. We're just going to make that assumption and roll with it, right? He's not going to bend over backwards and say, no, really, I exist out here. Like, no, it's just internally and externally evident there is a God. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Some of you guys have maybe heard me talk about this because I love that some of the most fun Hebrew words to say. You guys can remember these. Tohu abohu. (laughs) The the earth was tohu abohu, formless and empty. It it actually, um, empty is is good, kind of cavernous, big empty. But it also, those, those Hebrew words actually lend to something a little bit more, more chaotic, not just not there or something, but chaotic, like destroyed. And so what God's going to do is take things that are just out of order, out of sync, destroyed kind of more, and put things back in place. So think of it more like if you have a bunch of Legos, right? And they all get mixed around and you just dump them all. And, and, and so now what God's going to do is start taking all the blues and taking all the reds or whatever and sorting, putting it the way it ought to be. So in the beginning, there's the earth. It's tohu abohu, formless and empty. Darkness covers the surface of the water depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, and this is really important, God speaks all this stuff, which is why when we get to John 1, for instance, and, and we're introduced to Jesus as the Word, like this power, this creative force, this life force, It's a nod back to Genesis 1 because God just speaks the word and everything begins to happen all the way through this chapter. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so God saw that the light was good and God separated. There we go. That's the idea of the Legos. God separated light from darkness. He he put it in its rightful place. It was all mixed up. So he separated, put it in its rightful place from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And then he goes on and... Uh, you've read it 
uh, for today. Here's what I want to ask. As you guys contemplated these opening chapters of Genesis, I want you to just tell me, how would you describe God? How does God introduce himself to us in these first chapters? And I want you to um, restrict your observations to just this text that's in front of you. We know a lot about God from this point on. But just from your study of the opening pages of your Bible, what can you tell me about God? He is. He is. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, is, because that's the word that's there. Self-existent is the way, A-N-T exists, E, like that? Okay. Self-existent, not dependent. He's not created. He's already there. What else? Spirit? How do we get that? He's hovering above the waters, right? Spirit. And here's the crazy thing about spirit is also, and I'm going to use the word tangible, <laughs> uh, because he all of a sudden starts walking in the garden and talking and has a voice. So, so he is spirit, but he also like expresses himself. Now, ultimately, the greatest, fullest expression will be the incarnation, right? Where he becomes in flesh in Jesus. But even now, he doesn't remain like some Eastern thing, a force, like a Star Wars force that you can't ever really know. What is that thing? It's he becomes tangible and relatable. Okay. Powerfully creative. Yeah. That whole idea, don't like um, ignore maybe the most obvious thing, that he's the creator. That's actually foundational to everything else he's going to say and do. Even the call to the gospel, you guys, is you're going to meet your maker. I mean, you know, we do that in, in English and, I don't know, Westerns or something. Get ready to meet your maker, you know. But that, that whole idea of there being a maker, a creator, is foundational to everything else that we need to know about God and even about the gospel itself when it come, comes to us in Jesus. What else? Evaluator. How do you get that? What do you think? Because he looks at what he's done. Oh. And says it's good. Wow. I like that. Evaluator. He's mm, maybe uh, super intense. You know, like he's not some absentee god that just kind of whips it into shape and then turns away. He's evaluating. That's good. I like that. He's smart. Smart. Okay. How so? Where are you, where are you getting that? Yeah. 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 In fact, he's going to define define smartness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're we're as we get smart, it's because we get closer and closer to following his what what he calls good and smart. Yeah. What else? Relational. Relational. Yeah. Good. Powerful. Yeah. What else? Orderly. Orderly, for sure. You know, in the New Testament, we'll end up, like you get to the book of 1 Corinthians, for instance, where everything's chaotic, everybody's doing whatever they want, it's kind of a mess, you know? One of the things that uh, Paul is going to instruct the Corinthians is, you need to do things decently and in order. Why? Because God is a God of order. 
So one of the reasons that he calls the church to do things orderly is because it's the being. That's who he is. It's not just some chaotic thing. Okay, I'm going to keep watching time because I'm being good today. Um, and I, I want to point you to something that's in there um, that I think is really important. That he is good or loving. Now, where I'm, I'm teeing it up, I'm throwing it out there that that's what I'm saying is one of my observations from Genesis um, 1 and 2. Why do you th- what evidence do you think I'm using to make that descriptive? He made good things, and yep, certainly did. In his image. Yeah, okay, because we're in his image. And his relationship with those things and the people is a positive one. It's not one where he's demanding or, yeah. you know, like, yeah. yeah, where he's expecting something of them in a, in a harsh way. I guess. Yeah, in fact, you go through the whole thing, and there's one restriction. <laughs> Like all this life here, you guys, to, if you just let yourself get immersed in these first two chapters, the picture that is painted is this just lavish, bountiful Eden, right? So don't imagine some quaint little English garden or something, you know, we're talking about like, if you stepped outside these doors and as far as the eye could see, it's Eden, just And everything, look at the description, you guys, especially in chapter two, with the rivers and the trees and and he plants everything that's good for food and all this. So, okay, think about this. In the Bible, we know that God can create stuff that just sustains human beings and gives them everything they need just to keep them alive. But it's tasteless, doesn't smell nice. What, What do we call that? Manna, right? Manna, when they are bad in the wilderness, he says, okay, I'm going to keep you alive, but you're not going to enjoy this very much, you know? He gives them manna, right? And it's t- it doesn't, there's nothing, in fact, this is how utilitarian God can be. He gives them only what they need every day, and if they take more than what they need, it rots. If they don't get enough because somebody else got too much, it all of a sudden fills up and gives them exactly what they need. Like, he magically gives us exactly what we need, but it's, nobody enjoys it. Nobody sits down and says, oh, what are we having today? Oh, manna! No way! You know, it's odorless, tasteless. It, it's, okay. What does he do in Genesis 1 and 2? These trees are gorgeous. It appeals to your eyes. It's every, all different kinds of trees. It's not like just a grove of scotch pines or something. You know, it's like every different kind of tree you can possibly imagine. And they smell great. You know, like even here, some of even the hardwood trees, well alone, some of the more uh, fruit bearing trees actually have an aroma right here in the spring when all of a sudden you're like, you know, like, or if you've been out east, maybe to D.C. or something when the, the cherry blossom trees, you know, you're like, oh, they look outrageously cool they smell like and then the fruit you're just like oh there's an apple that's maybe the best thing i've ever had oh there's an orange holy cow that's even better than that and then you just keep going and it whatever the so just know this for adam and eve to get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would sin with right it's not like don't don't imagine a scene where there's all these kind of trees around and then here's this glorious gorgeous tree of good and evil and and all these other things have like wilted little wormed apples or whatever and there's just this beautiful no i'm saying 
for Adam and Eve to get where they were in the garden to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were having to like get through all, there's like fruit falling all around them and smells hitting them and wafting them. He is baiting them to love him and obey him with one little restriction way in the middle of the garden. Does that make sense? His goodness is overwhelming. Sometimes people can be like, why would God ever allow evil in this world? Right? We start with that premise. You guys got to turn that on its head. It's the opposite. Why would he fill the whole world with awesomeness, with one restriction, and then you flip the page and you're like, they're like, get me through all this, you know, eating all the way there. By the time you get to the scene in Genesis 3, don't imagine Adam with this growling stomach and finally I made my way to some food. He's like gorged on all the food that he's had from every other tree all the way till he got there because God just kept supplying beautifully, right? I'm just trying to say the overwhelming message from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is good and he wants to fill our lives with good. He wants to surround us with good, surround us with loving kindness. And if you're going to understand a world of suffering, you have to fix in your mind what is absolutely true. God didn't mean it to be this way. God's intention was not to give us a world of woe. It was a world of abundance and lavish goodness and overwhelming kindness. But along the way, he is good, but he is also powerful, orderly, and so he is absolutely a judge, (laughs) right? Um, And he absolutely absolutely will execute judgment when we get to chapter. Here's the other thing about God's loving kindness and and we talk about um, image bearing. Go go back to chapter 1 again. Okay, so my phone is being used to record me, so somebody else give me an idea. What time is it right now? 10.19. 19, and you're supposed to be out at 10.30. Okay. One last thought and then you're going you to ask your question. When you get back in in image bearing in verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Two words in, in that big, you know, sometimes there are verses that are pregnant with thoughts. This one's pregnant with thoughts. There's a lot going on in there, right? Sorry, that's not a... Anyway, I shouldn't do that in a room of women. I don't know. All of a sudden, I feel like I just offended somebody. And I... Anyway, two, two of the words are rule and subdue. The word rule is the Hebrew word radah. And it means very much that, rule. Uh, sometimes I like to use the word viceroy. We don't use that word very much. What's a viceroy? Has anybody ever heard that word? What's a viceroy? Other than a pack of cigarettes. I mean, it is that too. I don't even know if they make them anymore, Laurie. That's for us old people in the room. Other than cigarettes, what is a viceroy? What's a viceroy? 
It's, it's somebody that's put in charge for a king. Even when the king's absent, he has all the powers of the king, but it's never, no, nobody's ever mistaken. He's not the king. He's just in charge while the king's away. So really, Adam is given viceroy rulership, but nobody's ever mistaken that there's a high king, right, that, that ultimately Adam bows to as well. So it's a, it's a kind of a under ruler. And then the word subdue. My mother was actually a Hebrew scholar. She didn't know it. But she used this word quite a bit. The word is kabosh. Kabosh. How do you think my mother used the word kabosh? Yeah, I'm going to put a kabosh on that. And when she said that, what did she mean? <laughs> I'm going to crush you. <laughs> and that's exactly what that means. I'm going to, whatever you're doing, I'm crushing. I'm putting my foot down, right? That's kabosh. That's what Adam was told to do. Kabosh. It's a very strong word. It's a harsh word. It's a negative word. In fact, so harsh, so powerful, so negative. In the book of Esther, it's actually translated rape. When Esther is being held down, pinned down, that's the word that's used is kabosh. Here's the question. We're in the land of plenty. We're in Eden. There's no sin. Why would he be told kabosh? You're like, but there's nothing but awesomeness and beauty and what do you think? He's actually already hinting. He's, he's letting Adam know, be on the lookout because things are awesome right now. But there's somebody, part of being a viceroy is you got to deal with the bad guys and you don't see him now, but he's coming. Genesis three should not have come as a surprise to Adam. He was told right off, there's going to be somebody that's going to want to destroy Shalom. And when you encounter that being, even though you don't know who it is yet, you got a kibosh. you got a crush. Which is why when you get to Genesis 3.15, right, that you studied, what does the seed of Eve end up doing to the snake? He will crush you. Under his foot. You're going to take a nip at his heel. He will crush you. Right? Because Adam didn't do it. Adam should have. Adam absolutely, when it comes to Genesis 3, had the power, had the viceroy rulership. In that moment, could have reached up in that tree, grabbed the serpent, wrung his neck, and threw him out of Eden. And he would have actually been being the viceroy at that moment. He didn't. He actually took his badge of viceroy off put it onto the serpent and cowered and submitted to him instead of kiboshing. Which brings me to the question they asked uh, the other night. Um, and that is, what about that whole seed thing? So look at Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I don't know if you guys were here when I taught Psalm 23, but the way that he, he, the Hebrew language is really beautiful because they, they don't care that much about grammar and doing things properly. Whatever they want to convey, they just mess up word order and everything else to convey things, you know? It's not very scientific like English or Greek. And so here's what he does. In Psalm 23, he starts talking about God, and then all of a sudden he's talking to God from second person to third person, or I mean third person, second person, like in a moment. It's a weird grammar. He does the same thing here. First, he's just talking about offspring. Like generally, evil people are going to be after 
humanity or evil beings, this progeny of Satan out there, there's going to be war, hostility, and suddenly there will be a one-on-one encounter that happens. He, switching to he, he will crush you. You will bite his heel, but he's going to crush you. On, on the way down, that heel, on its way down to crush the head, it's like the serpent's going to reach up and, and take a quick bite, but only just before, wham! What we know now is that that's the crucifixion, right? Now we see that fully played out because we have the rest of our Bible that they didn't have in Genesis 3. And we see that Jesus' means of crushing the Satan, crushing the serpent, Satan, was actually to take first the blow of the crucifixion, but that became actually the final blow that would crush the serpent. So this whole offspring thing is that generally there's going to be a war. Think about this. Think of David and Goliath. Here's the Philistine army and the Israelite army. But instead of having both of them come together in a big war, it was you choose out Goliath, we choose out David, and those two kind of determine the fate of the whole thing. That's kind of what's going on there. Satan and, and Jesus are going to go toe-to-toe, and that's going to determine the whole war, right? Which is why when you get to both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, you have a whole reset up of Genesis 3. Except instead of the land of plenty of Eden, what do you have? Where is Jesus? In a wilderness. Here you've got Adam full. I mean, he's gorged on food. What about Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? 40 days without food. He's hungry serving. So all this stuff, like, it's almost like God is saying, oh, let me just prove to you that this is the Genesis 3.15 conqueror. I'm going to tie both hands behind his back. I'm going to get him you know, super hungry. He's going to be as weak as you can possibly be. And he's still going to crush you. He's still going to come after you kind of thing, right? So that's the beautiful tie of Genesis 3.15 to to Jesus. Um, Did I just go over time? Is it already? I've got three minutes. Are there any questions, anything at all that you guys maybe talked about from your study in these pages that you'd just like to explore or maybe comment on? What was it? Oh, no. Oh, no. I had it. Okay. So <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean that. I just have to do this. Oh. So in our study this week, we did kind of the examples of suffering where Adam and Eve, and we compared that to suffering, uh, you know, Rebecca kind of identified like their nakedness as their suffering. Yeah. And then it transfers, and we talk about Abraham and his suffering. And I just, it was, um, you know, one, the first is like, they're suffering because of a consequence for their sin. And the second was, you know, Abraham's suffering in obedience. And I felt like that there was, like, those aren't the same thing. No, but we're that's right. At the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, that's good because, I mean, the ultimate example, right, is that sometimes I suffer because, like, like Proverbs talks about. I dig a pit and then fall into it. Like, of my own hands, I'm suffering. I make bad choices. The ultimate example on the other side is Jesus, right? Who never did any good and still suffered greatly. And so, yeah. Oh, sorry. Did I say it the opposite? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Rebecca. Anyway. um, So under that umbrella, suffering is going to... And we get that, right? We All of us are simultaneously victims and perpetrators other people suffer because of choices we've made and we suffer because of things that other people do 
And so suffering kind of is the umbrella that's going to cover all that. And, and God's going to undo even the stuff that we did with our own hands, our own choices, as well as dry the eyes of, like when you get to the book of Revelation, one of the beautiful moments is when the martyrs who got killed for their faith, like clearly victims, and there's God wiping their tears from their eyes, right? But as will the thief on the cross, who was on the cross because he was a thief and a bad guy. <laughs> and God will be there to also bring shalom to, to all the above. Is that? Yes, I, it just, when we talk about like rejoicing in our suffering, and like Romans 5, 3, or I'm, Oh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. It's like, so rejoicing that Adam totally blew it. Right. That nope. felt yep. wrong. Totally. And so how can we distinguish between the different types of suffering that were, maybe we don't even know if we're experiencing it. Like it might come across as one thing, but really it's. Right. So how do we yeah, that's it? good. And I do think we have to be careful, especially those things that we do with our own hands. Sometimes I get uncomfortable when I hear Christians say, well, I did this or I did that, or they'll talk about some you know, pretty significant sins. But you know what? God used it to. And, and the way that they talk about it almost minimizes and somehow, well, God in his sovereignty almost meant for me to do that so that I could now experience whatever. You know, I get uncomfortable with that language a lot because then all of a sudden that's more like a, a fatalism or something like, well, what are you going to do? It all just kind of works. God never speaks of our sins in that kind of language or whatever. And um, so I do think we have to be careful how we... We're going to put all that under the umbrella of suffering, but we have to think of our suffering that comes upon us through no fault of our own versus the suffering that we bring on ourselves in categorical differences. One, I'm supposed to, my suffering over here is to draw me to repentance. Change your mind. This is what happens when you take the reins. Stop, repent, change, right? This over here is, but look to the cross. Even Jesus suffered through no fault of his own. God will bring you through, you know, like even things maybe physiologically like cancer. If you try to own and repent for getting cancer, God's like, no, 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 no. It's not your fault. Don't, you know what I'm saying? But over here, if it's because you stole something and got caught, no, you better right. repent, right? you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They all get. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And, and there's something, you guys, nobody asks for suffering, or we, I don't know, <laughs> you'd be a desperate person to ask for suffering. But all of us know, if you've had any time at all walking with Jesus, you know that you learn things about Jesus, and you learn things about yourself that you would have learned in no other way. And that's the beauty of Hebrews, right, where she's going to already has and will be taking you even more. The beautiful sanctifying part of suffering 
that seems like it, it is kind of magical. It's the only thing that can bring us to different levels of, of sanctification, stripping away our self-sufficiency, stripping away our, our just kind of um, being lulled to sleep. We are brought to new levels of sanctification. Yeah, I got to let these guys out too, so. I know. Oh. <laughs> and it won't be your fault, it's my fault, but I'm just saying. Good time. It's 1035. It's 1035. Let me do this. No, 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 I mean, it's 1033 right now, but it's 1035. Oh, then real quick. Oh, thanks. I get two minutes. Well, what I was going to say is just about the list, the Genesis list, like, I need to go back there when I'm hurting and suffering. Because what I do yes. Oh. Smarter than me. Oh. And he's so good. Because when you look at all those things he did, it's so, it just says giver. That's, oh, giver. totally. That's why you have to anchor. Because here's the thing, and we didn't go there, but we could have gone to Revelation 21 and 22 because the way that, you know, Lewis talks about God undoing all the things that have happened since Genesis 3 and, and bringing it all back. That's what happened. You get to Revelation 21, and all of a sudden, it's not just. A singular tree of life that we were banned from at the end of Genesis 3. Now there's a river, just like Genesis 2, a river, but the, the river is lined with the tree of life. Like tree, 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 tree. And every here's it gets more magical because that particular tree bears a different kind of fruit every month. So I, I walk to the river and there's this gorgeous tree of life. I have free access to it, not driven away like at the end of Genesis 3. Now I'm invited to it. And here's how much he invites me to it. I take a, a, a fruit off that tree, and it's incredible. I wander away, have fun. I get back there the next time, and it's got an entirely different, like, that had apples last time I was here. Now it's oranges. It's the same tree. How is that possible? I go away, and the next time it's watermelon. I don't know what it would be on trees, but, but it would, the, something even cooler. And it never stops baiting you back and back and back. And so what I'm saying is, whatever you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is multiply. I don't know how you make perfect better, but God does. Revelation 21 and 22 is Eden better, cooler. And that's what he's baiting us toward, is to see all this and to be like, man, if that's what it was like early on, what will it be like now when he's going to recreate it all and then invite us in? Not cast us out, but invite us in. Last word, even if it's going to take me a little over time, Rebecca. Look at the end of Romans real quick. I, I think this would be a really fun way to end the, the morning. At the end of Romans, chapter 16, crazy verse. One of those weird verses that should just leap off the page. Um, verse 19, Romans 16, verse 19. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good, yet innocent about what is evil. It's okay to be naive about evil stuff. And then look at this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under what? Your feet. Wait a minute. That's not what Genesis 3.15 says. There's only one that's actually crushing Satan. But Romans 16 says... I actually get swept into the victory of Jesus and he actually says he'll crush Satan under our feet. Now we all know, I, I didn't know. Actually, if it were me versus Satan, I'm telling you who's winning, hands down, like I'm out, you know. 
Jesus does it all, but somehow we get swept into this unbelievable victory of Jesus Christ. And he actually kind of credits us. It's like me taking credit for the Osage Green Devils winning the wrestling tournament. Like, I had nothing to do with it other than I happened to be from Osage, right? I'm just on that team in even a weird, way distant kind of way, you know? But I get swept in because I'm a green devil, right? I'm just saying like, so, wow, a devil. Now I'm swept into the devil's victory. I got to change that, edit that one up. Um, I'm just saying Romans 16 is a beautiful expression of this going on where it's like, you win. How crazy is that? We get swept into the victory of Genesis 3.15. All right, I'm going to pray for us and go get your kids. God, your word is amazing and wonderful and we could spend the rest of the day just in these opening chapters and not exhaust all that you are but we live in a world east of eden a world where all of us are encountering some level of suffering fix our eyes on the hope of the new creation that we will enter into because of christ Sweep us into the hope of the final victory that is truly ours under our feet. Stir our affections for you and our hope for you to pull us through the suffering that is real and right before us right now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.